1: You're with our changing world on RNZ National. I'm Alison Balance, and now, understanding how streams and rivers work is important. We especially need to know how they might behave when they're flooding so we can safely build on the riverbanks and span them with bridges that are safe and reliable. Heide Friedrich is a water engineer at the University of Auckland, and she's taking me on a tour of one of the university's largest laboratories, the Water Engineering Lab.
2: The laboratory in itself is really large scale. Like People often, when they hear the word laboratory, they think about you know, some chemistry laboratory or microscope. But our size here is roughly 1,400 square metres. I think the length would be at least half a rugby field. And what we are doing in the water engineering laboratory is to bring the river or the ocean into the laboratory.
1: The lab is impressive. There's a big underfloor reservoir to hold water that can be pumped around to various sized flumes or water channels. The biggest feature in the room is a steel flume that's one and a half metres wide and over 40 metres long. It's one of the largest flumes in the southern hemisphere.
2: Anything with water? If you have the water not moving, not dynamic, there's no life in there. It's dead. Because we want to model natural processes that occur in river engineering or coastal engineering, we fill them up with water, and then we create currents, and they can be either wave for coastal work, or they can be uniform currents for river work, and we can change the the magnitude in regards to the flow rates or velocities we want to study
1: the researchers are able to get water moving really fast if they want to. Water flow in some of the flumes can be more than a 1,000 litres a second. But as big as the flumes are and as fast as the water is flowing, these are still much smaller than natural streams and rivers. The trick is to downsize but keep conditions realistic.
2: With any kind of water engineering, scaling is really important. If you think of the Waikato River, obviously wouldn't fit into our laboratory. So we do have to downscale, we call it. But if you work with water, you cannot scale it down infinitively much because you're losing the kind of specifications or characteristics that you are studying because you get into viscous effects. And a lot of the challenges occur at the interface of water with some kind of surface.
1: The value of measuring water in a flume is that it can be completely controlled. There's none of the chaos and potential danger of trying to measure a river and flood, for example.
2: By controlling it, we always reduce the system, how a process happens. So we have to be careful that we don't create something in the laboratory that is not applicable when we try to transfer that knowledge to the field because we reduced it so much. But that's the challenge between science and engineering. Science, you have this holistic approach, whereas engineering, we are reductionist, we reduce it so much so that we can really identify what is force, what is action and reaction.
1: It's not just water that engineers like Haider are studying. Think of waves at a beach. They're usually stirring up lots of sand. That river is moving sediment, leaves, branches, and, during a flood, maybe entire trees. So the Water Engineering Laboratory has sediment pumps as well as water pumps and dotted around the room are containers of stuff, ranging from fine sand to coarse pebbles and even larger rocks.
2: In our work, we cannot scale the particle properties down because if you have your sediment that goes below a certain size, you get cohesive behaviour. So what you have in mud, and this is the kind of stuff, once you have cohesion the whole physical processes behind it change. So what we're doing here, we still work with the same kind of sediment that you would find on the beach or in the river. And we do scale the water, so we do not have the kind of flow rates or velocities you would see in natural environment, but what we can't scale down is the sediment. It's important to have suspended particles. It's important to have small sand that fills gap between bigger borders it's important to have even bigger borders like this because behind the borders you have something we call the separation zone and that kind of zone provides a shelter for an ecosystem. A lot of what I'm doing is trying to understand that feedback between a pattern I see which is like the overall pattern and the individual dynamics and to understand really how differences in individual particles contribute to an overall pattern.
1: Haida is interested in teasing out how different kinds of rivers, and importantly riverbeds, respond to different amounts of water, such as during a big flood.
2: It's similar to our congestion on the roads, right? It's not the roads that are the problems. The congestion occurs when there are too many cars, because when the road is full of cars then the traffic slows down and the same is if the channel would be deep enough and wide enough to carry a flood volume you wouldn't have the flooding but what we observe in New Zealand and internationally is a lot of variation at the riverbeds and when there is aggregation at the riverbeds there is less space for the water to go and therefore you have the flooding. Just thinking about
1: the length of this flume and I'm also thinking about your analogy before about cars on a congested motorway so it's part of the reason for having such a long flume because what might happen at one end then sort of compounds down the channel mm. in the same way that on a you know a busy motorway if something slows the traffic down the traffic slows down for
2: ages afterwards. Yeah, Yeah so in our studies we often call it uniform and steady conditions And uniform is related to the space. So this is where you said with the length of the flume. We call it an inlet where the water comes in and then an outlet where the water goes out. Those environments create already disturbance in itself. So we need to give the water a bit of space. We call it to develop uniform conditions. And often you see our measurement area is roughly two-thirds downstream, we call it because that's the kind of area that is the least disrupted by the inlet. But even the outlet is further downstream, the effect also travels upstream, backwards. Turbulence can go backwards. Exactly.
1: So you've got an experiment up and running. There's water and sediment washing down the flume. How do you measure things?
2: So in the past we had instrumentation that you stick into the water But by them actually being in the water, they change the behavior of the water already, right? So what you study is not actually the pure dynamics of the water, because it is already influenced by the equipment. And with the changes in cameras and imaging technologies, a lot of research in water engineering is done now with cameras. And then we analyze the images to get the information of the processes out.
1: Do you add dyes to the water?
2: Yeah, as you can see in our lab, you don't really see anything. You just see water. A big challenge is how do we make visible what is not visible? One technique would be to put dye in the water, but we also can put particles in the water that we then illuminate and we capture with our images. It's like looking at the sky. So if you have a clear sky, you see the stars. You wouldn't know there would be anything there during the day right so in regards nightfall comes no clouds you can see the star we do the same in our work here if you just come here during the day as an analogy you know water is invisible so we do really cool things to make the the motion visible and with the stars what you observe you think actually the stars are moving right but in effect it is the earth that is rotating and that's why it's so important that you have some kind of viewpoint that you know what to relate it to. And this is the challenge, again, with water motion and sediment motion at the same time. What is moving? What do you study? So we do have the cameras going in burst mode, and that way we can track that trajectory of the particles.
1: One of the things I'm thinking of that you see at the coast uh, with fine sand is that The the action of the water, the action of the waves creates ripples. And do the ripples then in turn feed back into what's happening with the water?
2: Yeah. So we call it really that, that feedback loop. In the water, we have turbulence. So if the water is in motion, if there are dynamics, there is turbulent behavior unless you have laminar flow. And in our world, we have something called the Reynolds number that is that threshold where we know if the Reynolds number is below a certain value, we call it laminar flow, and it just means there's no mixing. So if I have that comparison again with the traffic and the cars, it just means cars stay in their lane, there's no merging. Once they are in a lane, they stay. So that is laminar flow. But we are a civil engineering laboratory, so a lot of what we are doing in here is turbulent flow. So you do have that mixing. It means the cars are merging, could be new cars joining the traffic, our cars leaving the traffic and so on. Those kinds of turbulent imprints are visible on the sediment bed and there is a lot of research out there what are the mechanisms that create ripples and tunes and it's still a research area where depending whom you speak to you get different answers. So, another challenge is because we deal with water in motion and sediment in motion. So, you can't just glue all your pebbles down. <laughs> oh, that's what we're actually doing. We yeah. do glue, glue the pebbles down. Because if you have two processes that are in motion, how do you want to understand cause and effect? Because, you know, the water moves, the sediment moves. But does a sediment particle move because of the water? Or is the turbulence we observe in the water caused by a particle that is protruding out bigger than usual than another one? So the key thing
1: really is the interactions. It's not just the water, it's not just the sediment, it's the interaction between the two.
2: And that's, I think, really important also that we communicate that to the general public because it is just in general floods you just associate with the water. And people who have observed a flood they often will tell you, right, the aftermath is really all the mud and everything around. That shows you, you know, you have that interaction with something. So you have the change in water dynamics, you have the change in the channels, and then you have the living organisms that change in itself. So it's like a three-way feedback mechanism.
1: If this all sounds challenging, Haider says it is.
2: The son of Albert Einstein, he was a professor in sediment dynamics And in our research world, we always have this little anecdote that Albert Einstein taught his son, "Son, you couldn't have chosen anything more difficult to study than sediment transport.
1: Thanks, Haida. And that's Haida Friedrich, studying difficult questions in the Water Engineering Laboratory at the University of Auckland. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 12th of July, 2018. For photos, useful links, and a vast library of previous stories, check out our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash It's also a place where you can sign up for our handy weekly email newsletter. You can listen to us on the RNZ app and subscribe to us as a podcast in all the usual places, including Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, and Apple Podcasts on iTunes. If you're a podcast fan, and I'm picking you are since you're listening to this, RNZ is launching a new show called The Podcast Hour, in which Richard Scott searches out some of the world's best podcasts and chats to the makers. Listen out for it. You can keep up with it on Twitter where they tweet us RNZ Podcast Hour, and we are, as always, RNZ Science on both Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for your company. Bye for now. Nakume Nam Mihinui. mihi nui.
0: Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8000 PA suction and Master's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's EUFY.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best in class all in one robot vacuum for only $799.